Welcome back to another season of Blazing Trails. I'm Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. Today's episode kicks off this series with a topic that's always been top of mind at Salesforce, diversity and inclusion. Joining me today to introduce today's conversation is Molly Q. Ford, Vice President of Global Equality Programs here at Salesforce. Welcome to the show, Molly. Hi, Michael. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you. And so today's episode features a conversation with someone you and I both know and admire, Vernay Myers, VP of Inclusion at Netflix. Absolutely. Vernay is one of my sheroes. I'm careful not to call it a hero, but a shero. Uh, she was able to join us last year for our annual Representation Matters event. And she talked about how we can move diversity forward, a topic that obviously is near and dear to my heart. So excited to showcase this today. Yeah, it was a great conversation. And it's a great lead into the event that's coming up just in a couple of days. Can you tell us a little bit more about what's happening this year? Yes, representation matters. I like to call it my Black, Brown, and Indigenous Davos. It's the World Economic Forum convening that is Black, Indigenous, and Latinx in tech. It's happening this year. September 14th kicks off. It's a full week. It broadcasts daily at noon Pacific time. And you can join by going to Salesforce Live. So we have some great conversations around civic engagement, racial justice. Uh, We'll see some heroes and sheroes in the C-suite, Black and Latinx talent, and also hear from an amazing author about the plight of Indigenous folks. So great program. Again, kicks off the week of September 14th via Salesforce Live. Okay. Well, great. Thank you so much for joining us, Molly. Stay tuned after the episode for more of our conversation. And now I'll hand it over to Lori Castillo-Martinez and Verne Myers. Well, I can say we are thrilled to have you here with us today to bring this conversation to the workplace. So let's start at the beginning this diversity and inclusion journey for you. Um, Where did it start? How did it become such a passion for you? Thank you, first of all, for just having me. It's a pleasure here to be here and see all you beautiful people. It's kind of interesting, but I think maybe this whole thing started when I was just about to turn eight years old. It was uh, a moment where I first saw my father cry. It was the night that King was assassinated in 1968, and he had been a hero, like, you know, in school, you know, he's a hero. Obviously, my dad was a hero, but to watch my dad, who was strong and never cried, reach that point, it made me realize something was very special that was happening, and that it was very traumatic to my family. And I think it was really that night that I decided that I wanted to be an embodiment of King's dream and that I wanted to do right by his legacy. And that meant um, striving for peace and dignity and respect and justice. Those became words that came to life even as his life was taken. And it's sort of been that way from, <laughs> sometimes my, uh, I had two, a brother and a sister, an older sister and a, and a brother, and I would always be like, the family needs to meet. <laughs> the children are not being treated with dignity, you know? I mean, it was crazy. Um, and Started my sister early. was just like, oh, here she goes, you know? <laughs> Don't talk to mom and dad. They're just, they're not gonna listen to us. So. Um, But, and it sort of started there. And then, you know, I also realized that I 
You know, when King was killed, right, and I know so many people are young and just didn't have that experience, but like I'm from Baltimore City and the place, oh, we have Baltimore in the house. <laughs> um, uh, the place went crazy, like a lot of cities in the country, there was burning, there was fire, but like out of that rage and those ashes and a whole bunch of shame uh, for the country, they started opening doors just a little bit, yeah. not enough to get us all through. Yeah. Right. But just a few little black kids. Right. And I happen to be one of them. And uh, there were like pools all of a sudden and they were math enrichment programs. And then they opened up the school district and you could travel before we were like contained in our neighborhoods. And you know what that means if you understand systemic issues around racism and how it impacts education and opportunity. And so I got to go across to a different middle school that got me to a high school that got me to a college and then a law school and on and on. And all the time I'm looking at sort of what's not right. Yeah. Um, you know, I often say I love being a black person for lots of reasons, but one of them is that early on you realize that the emperor has no clothes on, mm. right? You're just mm. like, hey, something ain't right, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I often say like to my good white friends where they were like, I don't have anything against black people. I'm like, that's nice, that's nice. <laughs> but, um, but they can't see the system, right? Right. They can't see if like all the races stayed home all night, like stayed home, slept. Racism would still be like alive and well all day long. You know what I'm saying? Because yeah. it's, it's just automatic, it's just built in. And so I think that's the stretch for a lot of people who haven't been raised with that certain identity and experience that they can't see it. But I could see it early on and I really began after practicing law, I, that didn't fit. And uh, then I got an opportunity to start saying, how do I bridge these disparities that I see because I was the first black person my law firm had ever had, and I was the only one. And I was like, what? How is that still possible? It was Boston, legal space. <laughs> I'm not hating on the Boston people. I lived there for 30 some years, but there's a history. Yeah, for sure. Well, many of us know you for your famous quote, uh, diversity is being invited to the party, inclusion is being asked to dance. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us about somebody that asked you to dance, so to speak, and what did that, how did that impact your career? My parents were amazing. So basically, I always feel like, you know, in the big life, there are so many people who gave me opportunity, who could see my strength and encourage me. But then when I think about, like, what moved my career, because I have had a um, successful a consulting business on my own as a black woman entrepreneur for 22 years, right? And that, right, which when I think about it, it means that I'm old. Uh, but uh, <laughs> or but when I think about it, the number of people who paid in to make that possible, I'll give you an example. Unlikely mentor who really, I think, asked me to dance because um, he was a, a white guy, like maybe 20 years older than I was. He was in, from the Middle West, Midwest, Chicago, Jewish, um, Chicago, okay. <laughs> Balding, older, 
Jewish man. In fact, he called himself that, bald old white man, bald uh, man, yeah, bomb or something like that. And so he said to me, he was a consultant mm -hmm. and he was working in the law firm space that I was working in. He was, he was talking to more about financial things because he'd been a partner in a law firm. He wasn't any longer. And he kept hearing my name. So he kept saying, you know, so then he reached out to me. He said, I keep hearing your name. People have a lot of great things to say about you. Why don't we get together? When we got together, he said, I, he said, what do you want to do? How are you thinking about things? And I said, well, I really like to do a conference. You know, he's like, well, I've been doing conferences for 25 years. I'd be happy to help you figure out how to do it. I said, really? He said, yeah, let's do it together for a few years and then you can do it. We had like a really successful conference space for like five years and then off he went and I went on for five or six more years to do that conference. But he also said, come to Chicago, sit with me for 24 hours and I will tell you how to make more money than you're making right now. Wow. Right? And I was like, what's up? You know how black people are? <laughs> you know how black people are like, what is this? Thing? I don't know about this. Um, but I, I want to say that. I really want to say that because I see people inviting people sometimes on the mm -hmm. dance floor and they're like, mm, what's up? Yeah. Right? Or they get out and they don't do their best dance because they're so suspicious and there's a lot of cynicism and there's a lot of mistrust. And I get it and I know where it comes from, but you know you have to really look for those people who are saying they want to make a difference and make it easy and not hard for yeah. them to help you make a difference. And he was not lying. Within a year, I had increased my revenues by like 50%. It was crazy. Just by doing things that he had learned to do and that he was just passing it on. Wow, that's amazing. Well, in the spirit of sharing, you have shared with all of us this fabulous book. Thank you. We're all very excited about it. What if I say the wrong thing, many of us? 25 Habits for Culturally Effective People. Lots of stories, lots of great tips. What's one habit that you wanna share with us? Well, can you see this sure. book right here? So my first book was so long. It was like <laughs> this big, it was this long. My editor was like, do you want people to just buy it or do you want them to read it? I was like, <laughs> I want them to read it. He's like, so you're gonna have to cut it down. I like had a whole section on whiteness. He was like, okay, so right now the, the whole book is off kilter because <laughs> this one chapter about whiteness has got 80 pages to it. So he's like, okay. So the second book, I was like, okay, I got to make this thing readable on a plane. Basically, you need to get on a plane, like on the East Coast, and go to the West Coast or vice versa and be schooled, okay? So, <laughs> and, and I made it really um, like, okay, this is accessible. It's tip-based. I know people like their tips. So, <laughs> it's in your purse. But the thing I tried to do is I tried to... Basically, people were asking me this question all the time. And what I noticed is that there was a paralysis around engagement and bridging the divide because folks were constantly afraid they were going to say the wrong thing. So I was like, okay, I got to take these excuses away from folks, right? I want to tell them an example of something that got said incorrectly. I want them to know why it's incorrect. Right, because a lot of us either hear things being said to us that we're like, mm, that's not good. Or we say something and all of a sudden the whole room <laughs> freezes or people start looking at their shoes and you're like, oh man. So, so I was like, but you don't know why. You don't know why it's wrong. It just hits you wrong or it has a bad impact, but you don't know why it's wrong. So I was like, okay, I'm going to explain what's wrong and then I'm going to explain how to get out of it. 
right? That's the idea, or how not to get in it. Anyway, so, I mean, one of the things, um, I think it's tip two, where I'm like, I hope she can drive. Um, and a lot of people like that because it's the story of me being on a plane and hearing a female pilot's voice come over the PA system and being all excited. I'm like, oh, women are in the stratosphere, the cockpit. We're so awesome. We're moving <laughs> up. It's all good. Women's rights. And then it started getting bumpy. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I hope she can drive. Um, <laughs> Right? And that was like my indication that I was a biased person. Because I realized when I was coming back on that ride, the next leg, it was a male pilot. It's always a male pilot. It is often bumpy, and I never question the competence of the pilot. Mm. Yeah. And I'm like, look at that Miss Diversity lady, you know? <laughs> Right? And I was like, good grief. If I study this and do this work all the time, and that thought came to my mind, and I didn't realize in the moment that it was a problem, I had to actually see the, the difference in that leg back. And then I started really going, oh my God, this is what they're talking about, automatic associations, right? That, you know, even though I'm a good person, I got a brain that's sorting very quickly through a lot of data and it's gonna be doing it even more so when it's feeling like there's a high risk, right? And so like what happens is my brain says like big tube in the sky, <laughs> you want a guy. That's what the brain has been taught yeah. over and over again. And you know, hey, I know some guys who can't drive, <laughs> I know some women who were excellent drivers. So even having that information wasn't enough to keep me out of that automatic association. And I feel like that's what happens in the workplace a lot. I feel like that happens in our relationships, no matter where we are, in our communities, in our society, is that we're not aware of how our brain is making up stories about people before we even know who they are. And either that's a good story or that's a story that you don't want anything to do with. Yeah. Well, let's flip this on its head. You mentioned a minute ago, what if you're on that other side of that awkward comment or that awkward conversation? What tips do you have for those of us in the room who've or, maybe yeah. been in that seat? Yeah, right? And it actually just goes back also to what he said about microaggressions and micro inequities, right? So I know that our first response <laughs> is no, she didn't. Like that's, <laughs> or are you kidding me or whatever. But um, what I have learned to do is to um, decide that I'm not going to take on the whole thing by myself. I feel like we should share the pain, <laughs> right? And so what I am really trying to do is to give people a notion of impact, because what happens is that people are like, but I'm a good person and I didn't mean that. And you took it wrong and you're too sensitive and all of that, right? So that's why a lot of us don't speak up when there's a problem. But as a result, we take it all in. It hurts our feelings. We've got the trauma. It's re-stimulating um, us. And so I have learned to say things like, excuse me, but what do you mean? Just what do you mean? Because I could be wrong. I could have jumped to a conclusion. You might, you might be able to clean it up. You know how they say clean it up, <laughs> right? I want to give you the chance to clean it up. Um, or I might say, 
while it's, man, seriously, when someone really says something that slaps me up across my face, I'm like, wow, that hurt. Or I'll just say, ouch. So I try to get my whole company to get like the ouch thing going, right? Because ouch is like this nice piece of feedback that's not like, I hate you, you should disappear. It's not like, (laughs) it's more like ouch. It's like, or sometimes (laughs) I got this from my son. He's like, Awkward. (laughs) Like, I feel like that's just awkward, right? So, I mean, so part of it is if you're a comic person, you can kind of throw that in there, or you can say, can we start over? Or you can say things like, "My really, I've had a really different experience. This is especially important for an ally. Like, maybe you're not taking the full brunt, mm-hmm. but you can see that it is a problem, that you can say something like, well, my experience is really quite different, right? Or um, I wonder how people would feel if they understood this or that. Or are you aware of that? So you add extra info. So it really is depending on what day it is, right? <laughs> because some days we just are not up for it. So I'm not saying that in every case you need to say something, but I feel like we need to say more things in more cases than we do because we're always trying to fit in, get in, stay in. But we don't understand that when we don't stand up, it actually makes it harder for us to ultimately stay, right? Or to stay in the full capacity that we could deliver. And so we start to retreat. We start to look like we got an attitude all the time. We're not attractive sometimes because we're just, it's weighing on us, you know? And so I really, and you don't have to do it in a moment. So some people are really good. I've learned to do it in the moment. You know, like if I'm in a taxi or something, <laughs> and the driver starts going on about some people, mm. right? I mean, I time it, but when I'm, in, <laughs> you know, when I'm getting out, I'm like, I don't think we use that language anymore. Thank you. <laughs> you know, right? I mean, you don't have, sometimes you just going to have to do it that way. Yeah. Um, or I'll say something like, well, you know, not everybody is married to a person of an opposite gender. You know, because they'll just have like that heteronormative kind of language that they're using. And I'm like, "Eh, actually, so I think you can do it in the moment. But if you can't do it in the moment, you can come back. You can say, you know, that conversation we had, you know, it's just one thing that just kind of stuck with me. And so I thought I should just share it with you. Now, at Netflix, we build up, we're big on feedback. (laughs) So we're like, I need to give you some feedback. (laughs) But it's kind of nice setup because, yeah. I mean, feedback could be about anything, but this is another way that you could say to someone, like, you know when you use that term, I'm not sure that you know that actually the better term is this because that blah, blah, blah. And so a lot of times people appreciate that. Nobody wants to keep stepping in it. Yeah, no, fair enough. Well, speaking of um, those who help us out when we're in the workplace, allyship. And at Salesforce, it's something we've been talking a lot about. Yeah. Tell us about your experience at Netflix. How yeah. are you talking about allyship? Why is it important to your business and the yeah. journey that you're on? So, you know, I got there this time last year, right? So my first business was to get us all on the same foundational sort of conceptual understanding about, you know, inclusion, about diversity, about cultural competence, about unconscious bias, about 
privilege and allyship is the next step on that understanding uh, what this work is about. And, um, and the reason why we got to allyship ultimately, right, is it because as you get all this information, what are you gonna do with it? So allyship goes from concept to action. It's really a call to action. And we're actually starting to launch this whole thing around the whole world. And it means different things in different places to different groups. But mostly what it means is that you are going to stand up and be part of correcting the inequity and the, um, and the disparity in whatever environment, whatever team, whatever country, whatever society, right? And I think the solidarity idea is something that has to be driven home and also that allies are in partnership. And you really can't just call yourself an ally, you actually have to do something. Like we're never giving out the I'm an ally t-shirt yet, right? Because we're like, <laughs> no, nah, folks are to be trying to get the t-shirt but not doing the work. So <laughs> gotta earn that t-shirt. Right? And I think the biggest misconception and that we are trying our best to make sure people don't um, labor under is that somehow they're like the people who are helpless and then they're the people who have all the power and they're gonna help these people, right? Because they're good people and they're nice. And that's not what allyship is about. Allyship is deeply, you understand that unless this person is good, nobody's good. Yeah. That you stand to benefit as much as anyone that you're stepping in to support because we cannot continue in a world where people are not respected, aren't given dignity based on something that should not be of any relevance whatsoever, their identity, their background, how they identify, right? So one of the things we're saying to allies is you must be led. You don't lead the other person. The other person has to lead you. You have to be in partnership. It's a lot of listening. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of learning before you can even step, really. And so that is really the work. It is not, you're not doing philanthropy. <laughs> it's not about sympathy. It's about realizing that you want a certain type of world, that you have also been injured by sexism and racism and hetero... All of that, all of us bear the brunt of those uh, oppressive systems in different ways. And so we all have to be part of changing it. And it's everything from our larger society to how people interact with each other in the workplace, in a team, with their outside partners, their clients, their customers. It's all part of the same thing. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, many of us, to the tune of two million of us, are fans of your TED Talk. Thank you. Where you're talking about this chipping away at biases. And you say in your TED Talk, you have to walk toward the discomfort. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. What does it look like to consciously walk towards that discomfort? It's so funny because after that TED Talk, I mean, people will be coming up to me in the street and they're like, okay, so. <laughs> I went, to the, I went to the grocery store. Oh, no. There's a guy there. I've seen him for 20 years. I've never spoken to him because I didn't know what to say, whatever. And I spoke to him. <laughs> I'm like, how did it go? 
it's okay. It's okay, right? I mean, the things that people are scared to do kind of blows my mind. I'm like, all right. But um, all of us, quite frankly, have some level of discomfort, yeah. right? So I'm taking my boyfriend to the HRC dinner um, in DC, the Human Rights Campaign dinner in DC. Netflix is gonna be there, I'm taking him. He's super straight. He's super black man straight <laughs> from the South. And I'm like, you ready? <laughs> and he's like, yes. But when you think about it, it doesn't matter. Like whatever your up identity is, like whatever your identity is where you're in the majority and you have been used to the norms being around your identity, whatever that is, there is usually going to be some discomfort as you try to get comfortable. Yeah. But people don't realize that. They somehow think you can get comfortable without being uncomfortable. You can't. Yeah. You got to first be uncomfortable and do it enough until ultimately you know it's okay to wear jeans to the black church. Like, <laughs> because sometimes we're wearing jeans to the black church now and the black folks in church are going to be nice to you no matter what. You know, no, seriously, because I had some white friends. They're like, oh, my God, why didn't you tell me we went to church? We had all jeans. Everyone's dressed. We feel terrible. We were disrespectful. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> it's not that bad. It's not that bad. I'm sure people talked about you, but it's really no, no, no. <laughs> no. But I mean, mostly I think we fear the unknown, and the more we fear it, the more we fear it. You see, like, the more we don't make the connections, the more we don't gain the proximity, as they say, then we get to make up stuff about how scary folks are, how ignorant they are, how whatever, violent they are, whatever the stories are we make up. And so my call to action for people is to, for example, if I asked you to, uh, you could only choose 10 people to come to a very important dinner at your house. And you can't, it's not your 10 most important people, including your family. Like, okay, we already stipulate that maybe um, your family is part of your closest crew, but like non-family members, who would be at your table? How old would they be? What would be their gender identity? What would be their sexual orientation? What languages would they speak? You know, what does your own circle look like? Because if you do that analysis, some of us have a super, super diverse group of people we hang with, but many of us have a circle that reflects who we are. And that means on some level we are avoiding discomfort. Now, some people are like, look, I go to work every day <laughs> and I'm outnumbered and yeah, hell right, you're right. I'm going to surround myself when I'm not at work <laughs> with my peeps. I get it. Um, and there are also some limitations to that, right? Especially as you think about where you're in the majority and where you might need to expand beyond your comfort zone. So I'm really saying, you know, don't get crazy awkward 
you know, build relationships yeah. around some common goal or theme. If you're at work, you're working. Build a relationship with someone you're working with. And then little by little, that relationship starts to grow. You grow trust. And then you start to have more of that relationship grow into more personal things. And then you start to have various conversations. And then you're, you're expanding your social and professional circles. And by doing so, you can stop saying... <laughs> things that get you in trouble because you know and if you have a friend like I remember I had a friend I have a friend she's Jewish and I had gone to Barnard College and I had been with a lot of Jewish girls many of whom were my friends some who were not but this was like my best one of my besties in Boston a grown-up and I was describing a situation from college and I said to my friend I said well you know she was a typical and I used a a name that I had heard over and over again at school, three letters, beginning with a J. And my girlfriend was like, what? And I was like, you know, she was a, and she was like, what? And I was like, you know, she's like, she's like, you can't say that. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean I can't say that? Because, and then I did the typical thing we hate. But I have a lot, you know, but you're my friend, we're Jewish friends. <laughs> and, um, and you know, I love the Jewish people. And I started doing all that stupid <coughs> stuff that we hate when people are like, you know, I got one Latina friend, you know, so, <laughs> and I was at her house or, I've been to an Indian wedding. You're like, so? You know, so, right? I was doing all that. And she looked at me and she was like, you can't say it. And I was like, oh, shoot. I had no idea, right? But in a friendship, A, your friend can tell you where you're wrong. And B, you can apologize. And three, they will still be your friend. So I say build relationships, create friendships, learn things from that and you can make mistakes in relationships and recover from them but when you do this to everybody and you keep them at arm's length it's really hard to build that kind of rapport and trust where you can learn and grow yeah that's amazing thank you thank you so much <laughs> That was Renee Myers and Lori Castillo-Martinez. Molly, what did you think? I could listen to that interview a hundred times. Each time I find a new nugget of wisdom that Renee is dropping on us. Awesome conversation. It really was an enlightening conversation. And I thought some of the points around mentorship and allies was really interesting. Can you tell me some examples of allyship that you've seen in your career or that, that you've done as, with folks to help? I have one that's kind of fun. Uh, we have a term called heat, and I want to give credit. Heat is something two medical doctors on Twitter phrase. Michael, have you heard of a heat? No, tell me about it, Molly. But you're gonna know what it is when I finish. So heat. It's a situation where you're having a meeting, and there's a group of folks in the room. You're having a conversation, and a woman has an idea, and it goes unnoticed, and everyone keeps talking, and they're talking over her, and they brainstorm, and a few minutes later that man, a man in the room might have the same idea. And then everyone goes, great idea, Bob, that was awesome. And the woman sitting there stewing like, wait, that was my idea. And so they call that a heat when the man heat the woman's idea. So I wanna flip that on its head and I challenge people to sheepeat, right? So if you're in a room, Michael, and you see a woman or a person of color, or anyone for that matter, even a man get talked over or their idea, uh, 
uh, I'm going to call it colonized, then you can sheepy using your voice to say, Hey everyone, I actually think that was Rebecca's idea. Rebecca, do you want to repeat that idea? And so that's how allies show up. Use your clout, use your influence, use your privilege to show up for someone else. So no more he peeps. Now we she peep, which means we advocate and amplify the woman or the underrepresented person's voice. I love that, Molly, because I think we've all been there in the meeting and we've experienced that. Well, Molly, it's been great to chat today and uh, I really enjoyed this episode and the conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity, Michael, and highlighting uh, diversity, inclusion, equality, and representation matters. I'm Michael Rebo from Salesforce Studios. Thanks for joining us today. 